really plead his case before God? What would you say to God in your defense? Well, the fact is that there's really only one thing we could say if we were to find ourselves before the throne of God. And we're going to find out exactly what that is on this edition of Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth as we explore the book of Job, chapters 13 through 15. Would you pray with me now as we begin our study? Heavenly Father, fill us with all wisdom and knowledge by your Spirit as we study your Word. We pray this in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Now, we are coming back to this 13th chapter that we just got our foot in the door last time. And this is Job's answer to Zophar. And after this, these friends will make another round of trying to break Job down. That's what they're trying to do. They want him to admit that he's committed some secret sin and confess it to them. But Job doesn't have any great sin to confess, really. That is, not a sin of immorality or one that would have to do with dishonesty or something like that, a sin of the flesh or worldliness. That's not the problem with Job, my beloved. They're not actually speaking into his situation at all. And this is now Job's third answer to these men, and he's becoming a little bit bitter. You remember in chapter 12, he said in Job 12 too, Truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. And now as Job continues, we find in chapter 13, he says, uh, remember in verse 3, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. They had not diagnosed his problem. Therefore, they were not helping him. That was not the position they were taking. Now, notice as he moves along in this section, we continue in Job chapter 13, picking it up in verse 5. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that, and that it would become your wisdom. And Job says, look, the best thing for you to do now is to just keep quiet. That would be smarter than what you're saying because you have not helped me at all. Now he speaks back to them and he says again in verse 6, Please hear my argument and listen to the contentions of my lips. Will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him? In other words, when they are accusing him of committing some awful sin and when they say that God is judging him, you see, they're dealing deceitfully for God. They're not representing God as they should. And Job knows that. He recognizes that. And you see, they are not representing God correctly. If they could only bring Job to the place where he would see himself as he really is, but instead, they put him on the defense. Now, he makes a good case for himself, but it makes it look bad for God, you see. It's as if God is to blame in all this. And his friends hammer him with that but they aren't helping him at all. And so he goes on in that vein here. Job says in verse 8, Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he examines you? Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Now Job is coming back at them. He says God is going to judge you for misrepresenting him. 
Verse 11, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Be silent before me so that I may speak. Then let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, in the middle of all this, the faith of Job stands unshakable despite this onslaught from his friends. And they have now become strangers to him, by the way. He says, verse 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Now, this is the great faith of this man, Job, even at this point. But they have not reached the root of Job's problem at all. And that will come out a little bit later on. But notice it says here, argue in the New American Standard. The King James Version says, I will maintain my ways before God. Job says, I can go into the presence of God and I'm going to defend myself. But my friend, the minute that you begin to defend yourself, well, you'll lose your case. When you come in the presence of God, the thing to do is to plead guilty because he knows you. And you don't go into the presence of God with some high-paid attorney and by some little clever routine try to get out of the accusation and try to just annul God's statement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, God just doesn't change any of that at all. And you can't hire some clever lawyer who's going to get you out of that. And you're not going before one of these soft-hearted and soft-headed judges either. You're going before the God of the universe, who is the moral ruler. And therefore, what is this idea that you think you can go in there and defend yourself and make your case a good one? The thing to do is to go in there and plead guilty and cast yourself on the mercy of the court. And you will find out that God has a mercy seat. And it's a mercy seat because the blood of Jesus Christ is on it. And he paid the penalty for your sin. And my friend, that's the only way that you're going to get off. This man Job here, you can see he really needs somebody to represent God before him and to keep him from defending himself, and let him cast himself on the mercy of God. This book has a tremendous message for us, as you can see. Now, moving on in this section here, verse 16, this also will be my salvation, for a godless man may come before his presence. Now, you see, there are glimmers of light that break through this man's soul. He says, he's going to be my salvation. And that is the teaching even of the Old Testament. God is our salvation. My, how David held on to this. And David was a great sinner, by the way, but he didn't live in sin. He just committed an awful sin. But David, he said, God is my high tower. He is my shield. He is my shepherd. He is my salvation. See, salvation isn't a coin that you can get and you carry it around with you, but you might lose it. Salvation is God, and salvation today is Christ. You either have him or you don't have him. You either trust him or you don't trust him. 
There's no other alternative. It's no man's land in between. You can't stand in the middle either. Either you're going to go for him, you're for him, or you're against him. And as Simon Peter says in Acts 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He's the only one out for the human family. And so Job has a glimmer of light, and it's marvelous. And this is evidently in the time of the patriarchs, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and somewhere along in that time frame. Now, Job says to them, verse 17, "'Listen carefully to my speech, and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold now,' Job says, "'Listen to me.'" And I think that we should probably listen to him. Shall we listen to him now? Verse 18, "'Behold now, I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated.'" Now, unfortunately, the thing is, Job is not going to be justified because someone else has justified him. This man, Job, thinks that he has a good case, even before God. And a lot of people think that today. You hear them say, oh, well, I don't mind coming before God. I can stand there and, you know, I, I, I'm pretty good, I think. I, I'm kind and I'm generous. My friend, I have news for you. You've already been condemned before God. You are a lost sinner. You live in a world today that's an absolute mess. And man is in rebellion against God. And you've got that kind of a heart. This idea today that, well, you're something and God sure depends a whole lot on you. Oh, he can miss you, my friend. He can get along just fine without you. But thank God he says that he's not. He loves us. He's made a way for us. So will you listen to Job? He says, I know I will be vindicated. And the King James says, justified. I know I will be, but it's not because I've got any defense myself. I don't have any. I'll cast myself on the mercy of the court. Now, verse 19, listen to Job here. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. And you know, that's interesting because you remember at first Job wanted to die. He said that he wished he hadn't been born. He wanted to die. Now he says he would be silent and die. Well, Job, if you wanted to die, why don't you just be silent and die? But he's not. He's going to keep talking. That's the way of man, isn't it? All of us are like that, I think. Are we not? Now listen to him here. Verse 20. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide from your face. Remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. Now he's telling God what to do. And I think a lot of us do that. I hear people say, Oh my, I have unanswered prayers. No, you don't have unanswered prayers. God always answers prayers. He says no sometimes. At least he said no to a few of my prayers, but my friend, no is an answer. You see, a lot of our praying is giving orders to God, like we're a sergeant talking to a buck private and giving him our marching orders. 
saying, well, we want you to do this and you do that and do the other thing. And God just doesn't move that way. Job is trying to tell the Lord, verse 21, remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. Job is a frightened man. But God says, buddy, I'm not moving according to your plan. I've got my own plan, and I'm going to work it out in your life. Verse 22, then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, then reply to me. Now, prayer is not to make God move on your beck and call. The purpose of prayer is not to change God. The primary purpose of prayer is to change us. You see, we don't pray to change God's mind, nor does God take his marching orders from us. When we pray, the reason is so that we can get ourselves in line with God's program. And God has marching orders for us, actually. If we seek after him and search for his voice through prayer and through study of the word, we begin to find it. And there's different orders for everyone. And somebody may say, but prayer changes things. Well, that is certainly true. But prayer changes us. That's the important thing. If you think that God is a FedEx man and you can just call him up and have him come and deliver a gift for you or send a message out, you're wrong. That's not it. Job here is telling God what to do. And I don't point my finger at Job because if I'm being honest, I've done the same thing. Now, listen to Job. He says here, verse 23, How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble? Or will you pursue the dry chaff? Job wants a showdown with God, very frankly, that what he's asking for now, he says, hey, I want to know how many sins I have for him to be treating me like this. I'm just like a leaf being blown to and fro and getting stepped on. And I feel like God has stepped on me. He says, verse 26, for you write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. While I am decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Job says, well, I'm just rotting away. That's what's happening to me. And Job just couldn't see the point in it. Now, in coming to chapter 14, this is a great elegy on death. He says here, verse 1, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. And there's nothing that could be truer than that. What it means is simply this, trouble is the common denominator of mankind. All of us have had trouble. And Eliphaz says, for man is born unto trouble as sparks fly upward. We've seen that. Trouble is the language that the whole entire human family knows about. Every person knows turmoil. Now, Job here is speaking on the subject of death. He knows that death is inevitable and that he must depart from this world. But now he has a hope beyond the grave. And now let's see that. He says, verse 2, 
Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Just like a shadow appears when the sun goes down, well, where does that shadow go? It's gone. Verse 3, you also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. I'm just a shadow down here, Job says. I'm like a flower that's been cut down. Verse 4, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. And that is a great truth, by the way. That's the reason that I don't care who you are, you are a sinner. We all are born in sin. David put it like this, in sin did my mother conceive me. And that is a great truth. You can't bring a clean thing out of an unclean. How could you be a sinless creature when you had a sinful father and a sinful mother? You can't get a clean thing out of an unclean thing. Job says, verse 5, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Job says that as a human being, he feels like he's pretty well hemmed in. And by the way, you are pretty well hemmed in. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What did David mean by that? Was he talking about when he finally came down to his deathbed? No. Do you remember Hamlet, how the grave digger said that he went to work the very day that Hamlet was born? You see, the very minute that you're born, the very minute that you start out in life, you start to die. You start going down a canyon where the shadow of death is on you. And you keep on going until the canyon gets more narrow and more narrow. And then that's it, my friend. The moment he gives us life, he begins to take it away from us. Now, Job says, verse 6, Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires. And where is he? Now we're talking about this life. A man who has made a tremendous success down here, and he's gone. Where is he? Well, he might have a few monuments or a statue, or oh, he may have a street or two named after him, but, well, what good is that? What does that amount to? Now, Job goes on, and some more glimmers of light begin to break through now, and we begin to see the real faith of this man here. He says, verse 11, as water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. And this faith culminates here, he says in verse 14, If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. Now, this is Job's answer to Zophar, you recall. 
And if you flip over to the New Testament, you can see in portions of 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians how the hope that Job expresses here is a sure hope that when we die, we're going into the ground, but we're only going to stay there until our change comes. In other words, we're going to be resurrected. And that is a wonderful hope for you and I as members of the body of Christ today. And notice here that Job is once again looking for death as a way of escape, but we begin to see a glimmer of hope breaking through here in this man's words. Listen to it again, uh, turning back to verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. Now again, Job asks to die. But now he hopes that he can remain in the grave just until God's anger against him was over and then be raised to life when God calls him back. Verse 16, for now you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. Now, if Job were dead and in the grave, then God wouldn't be watching his every step and counting his every sin. Everything would be hidden. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap up my iniquity. Now, through this passage found in the book of Job, in this very and most ancient of ancient books, expressed in beautiful, poetic language, here we find the first ever hope of resurrection for those who trust God. Job had a tight hold on the hope that if he died, he might live again. Now, moving along here, verse 18, But the falling mountain crumbles away, and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones, its torrents wash away the dust of the earth, so you destroy man's hope. You forever overpower him, and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. Job now returns to his complaint, and this is where Job appears hopeless. He knows that death is inevitable, and he hopes that he will live again after his death. But, verse 21, his sons achieve honor, but he does not know it. Or they become insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him, and he mourns only for himself. In other words, Job feels like during his death, he's going to be separated from God. And he was painfully sad to think of that. And that is hopeless there. Now, we move down into chapter 15, and here we begin the second round of discourses. Eliphaz will now speak again. You remember that he was the first to speak to Job. Now he's back for round two. Now, remember, this man Eliphaz is the voice of experience, He's very spiritual. He's had a dream and a vision, and he's seen something. And boy, he's really had an experience. And as a tangent, personally, I don't feel like all these testimonies are of too great a value, nor these vis vision-casting church leaders today. 
And the reason is because it rests truth on experience. Well, first of all, we should have truth, which is the Word of God. And then experience should come out of that. Too often people want to hear a testimony. They don't want to hear the Word of God. Experience, well, that may or may not rest upon the Word of God. Your vision casting, that may or may not rest upon the Word of God. Might just be your idea. I've heard some people give their testimonies or their visions. Many Christians, so-called Christians at least, many church leaders. But it was totally unscriptural. And it was probably in line with the Sears catalog or the Cosmopolitan magazine, more so than the Word of God. The Word of God is what's important. And so now we come back to this man, Eliphaz, who has had a great experience. And it's mighty hard to get by someone like that. Now, will you notice, chapter 15, verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself up with the east wind? My, these men hit each other hard, don't they? They're slugging it out now with these intellectual haymakers that they're throwing at each other. In other words, Eliphaz says, Boy, Job, you are really windy. You're really just talking. Verse 3, should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? Now, you see, instead of helping Job, they do nothing in the world except attack him and break him down and try to make him confess. When a man is in trouble, you don't treat him like this. Now he says, verse 4, Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder mediation before God. For your guilt teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I, and your own lips testify against you. Now he really gets after Job, as you can see. Listen to him here. Verse 7, Were you the first man to be born, or were you brought forth from the hi- before the hills? And that's a good one, my friend. In other words, he says, well, you speak as if you know something, Job. And by the way, Job is. But again, all of these men are working on a wrong premise. All of them. But they put Job in a pretty bad light. They have not comforted him at all. They have not made him see nor brought him to the place where he could see that he is a man that has a great lack and a great need. And God is probably using this to bring him to that place, and we'll see that it is bringing him there. Now he says, verse 8, Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Now he says, well, we've got wisdom over on our side, and you just don't have it, Job. That is the argument here. Verse 11, are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away, and why do your eyes flash, that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? Now, Job, how can you reject our wisdom as though you have more insight than us? We know. We're we're the guys. 
What is man that he should be pure? Verse 14. Or who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Now, Job has been defending himself. But these men are working on the premise that Job has committed some awful, terrible sin and that he ought to bring it out in the open. Now he goes on, verse 15, Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. And that's all true, by the way. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he died, he not only died to redeem you and me, my friend, but in his redemption, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to come because he redeemed it. The heavens are not pure in his sight. Remember, back in chapter 14, he said, So man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. And now we continue uh, with Eliphaz. He says in verse 16 of chapter 15 of Job, How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. And that is a true statement. There is no question about that. This man actually is saying things that are quite obvious. And you see, men in that day did not have this false philosophy of life and this false psychology, this idea that man is a rather superior creature because he's the product of evolution. And if there's anything wrong with man, well, it's just because man has made a few mistakes. His sin is, well, it's really just ignorance or it's selfishness, but nothing that can't be cured by rubbing a little salve on it. And these men are working from that wrong premise. And we see again here that Eliphaz is the voice of experience. Verse 17, he says, I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have seen I will also declare. And now let's listen to him here as Eliphaz speaks. Verse 18, what wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes in his pain all his days, and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Sounds of terror are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, and he is destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Distress, distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a, ready, a king ready for the attack. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty, he rushes headlong at him with, massive, with his massive shield, for he has covered his face with his fat and made his thighs heavy with flesh. He has lived in desolate cities in houses no one would inhabit which are destined to become ruins. He will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure, and his grain will not bend down to the ground. He will not escape from darkness. The flame will wither his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his palm branch will not be green." He will drop off his unripe grapes like the vine and will cast his flower like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, and their mind prepares deception. And you see, all his experience 
has not really taught him. Because again, his conclusion is that Job is being a hypocrite. And he says that that was the reason that things were going so badly. And we're going to stop there next, uh, for this time. We'll hear Job's answer to Eliphaz in our next session. So I would encourage you to go back and reread what we've covered today. Also read forward through chapter 16 for next time so that you can review what we've covered and get a preview for next time. And as always, so that you can come to your own conclusions. And until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. See you later. Structures before.